Welcome back to the Positive Sum podcast, hosted by myself, Drew Jarmus, and James Lesh. In this week's episode, we discuss the four-hour work week, um, and complement the show, James put together a comprehensive show notes, which you can receive free of charge by subscribing to our Substack newsletter. Uh, this is linked in the description, as well as our Positive Sum Discord channel, which will be a really good way to join in the conversation after the episodes, and then also interact with some of the former guests that have been on the show. Uh, as always, if you like this show, feel free to give it a rating on the platform where you stream podcasts and give it a share with any friends or loved ones. Uh, with that housekeeping out of the way, let's get to the show. All right. Episode 16, back again. And this is actually the four-month mark of doing the podcast. So, Drew, how do you feel about being four months into this? I feel pretty good. I think uh, we've continued to iterate as time has gone on. I think that we've arrived at a format that makes a little bit more sense now. And I'm excited to get some more guests on now that we're in the new year. We were thinking about getting more guests during December. I think we ended up getting one guest and then we had one last week obviously which i thought went well and yeah i think now that we're past the holiday season we'll get guests on a little bit more frequently so we can look forward to that a little bit more in the coming weeks and months yeah victor cruz last week if you didn't listen to that we talked about strength and conditioning uh working with elite athletes and then some other general tips for any lay person who's, who's working out and, and trying to get into a workout habit in the new year. So definitely check that out and subscribe to our Substack, positivesumpod.substack.com is where he posted the show notes from that one. That's when we got the most extensive with those show notes. Um, so check those out. You can get kind of get the quick 10,000 foot view on what came out of that podcast from those notes. Um, but yeah, it's a good episode. We'll definitely have more guests on as the year progresses. That's something we're, we're working on. Um, we're both, both in a little bit of flux to start the new year. Drew, do you want to tell people kind of where you're at, what you're up to? Yeah, just generally I'm down here in Tampa for my job. We had a lot of hurricane damage, so typically we'll have these January camps prior to, if anyone has a video, I'm actually looking out at the uh, stadium. Um, typically, we have these January camps that are prior to spring training, just like any minor league or major league team has. And unfortunately, the hurricane has damaged our complex, our spring training complex. Uh, but fortunately, we are pretty close to the major league complex. So we're able to use their uh, facilities for the next month or so prior to going to Orlando for spring training. So I'm just down here as part of my job, just doing nutrition check-ins, handling some of the food service aspects and um, participating in some of our uh, sports science summit that we just had. Cool. Yeah. yeah, that sounds good. I mean, things will definitely um, be ramping up for you soon as we 
approach spring training and the baseball season. So obviously we'll have to work around that. Um, yeah, I, I had a busy week too. I was just in, uh, DC for the week for work, actually. Um, so my second time ever being in DC, which, uh, it was pretty cool. Um, but now we're back, back home, um, ready to do, do the podcast, get settled in here. And, uh, yeah. So th- this week, this week, we're actually just going to talk about what I've, uh, what I've been reading, and it's actually a book Drew and I have both read. It's The Four-Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss. Um, this is a book I picked to read for the month of January, um, if anybody remembers from our our habits and, and 2023 Outlook episode. I decided that for 2023, I'm only going to read one book per month, and I'm going to spend uh, – more time with the book and trying to really understand what the book is saying and, and actually take some things away from it. Um, and, and, and Drew has also read this book too. So we're, we're kind of just going to have a little bit of a discussion about it. Uh, for those who don't know, the four hour work week is a book written by Tim Ferriss. It was written in 2008 actually. And the whole book is just about how to uh, start a lifestyle business that frees you to really just do whatever you want. It, it frees your um, work from, from time. So the whole book is just about um, it's a lot of lessons in, in productivity, uh, in automation, uh, in uh, management and decision-making. And then throughout the book, Tim Ferriss kind of takes you, through starting your own lifestyle business of a sort, choosing a product that you can, um, you know, kind of easily financially model and um, get a lot of automated processes around to hopefully get to the point where this product can just basically sell itself with the help of maybe a few employees and a few automated services so that you don't actually have to spend any time on the business you can just kind of go live this dream life that you want to live with, with income coming in uh, from this, this business, this essentially machine that you set up to just run itself and, and basically print money. So that's not what we're going to be talking about today is not how to set up a money printing machine, essentially. Um, like I said, the book is written in 2008. So <laughs> how Tim Ferriss actually takes you through how to start a business is like pretty dated. There's a lot of, uh, examples in here of like printing, uh, not printing, but, um, like burning DVDs and selling, selling DVD information products and things like this, obviously things that have been supplanted now by, by the internet. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of websites in here he recommends for things that, um, I think might be dated and and not as useful anymore. I, I mean, one of the big parts of the book is, uh, a big chunk of the book is he tries to help you figure out how you can um, get a remote work arrangement from your boss so that you can work on your business uh, at home while also being more productive with your day job that you can hopefully eventually quit. That's obviously not, that's that work has been done for people now. Most people work remote. Um, Not, not true, but uh, I mean, like I've always worked remote uh, obviously since the pandemic. So uh, most people work remote. So that part of the book is kind of irrelevant at this point. But um, we'll just be talking more about like kind of some broad principles that I've taken away and then 
we'll just open it up as a conversation from there. Yeah. So I forget, have you had, or have you read this book prior or is this your first exposure to it? Mm, yeah. I'd like poked around in it on Kindle one time. I have the physical book with me today for anyone who hasn't seen it. This is what it looks like. I'm holding it up to the camera. I think we're going to post a video. Um, and yeah, I, I had poked around it. I knew what it was about. I've heard Tim Ferriss talk about it on his podcast, but I'd never really thoroughly read it. Um, and yeah, no, never, never, never yeah. really read it before. Yeah. I think I first actually read it in high school. I think it was actually on audible. I listened to it in high school, but I remember my friend, uh, will shout out, will, uh, getting into the four hour work week. I believe we were in maybe eighth or ninth grade. He was so ahead of his time. I think it might've been legitimately around 2009 or 2010 when he had first read it as like a 12 or 13 year old. But um, yeah, I had listened to it and then uh, circled back to it in college to sort of automate and distill down some of the essential, I guess, I don't know, systems for studying and being productive and still managing internships and other side hustles. But I haven't really gotten back into it until this last week or so. So definitely excited for the discussion and, you know, discussing some of the things that have changed as my life has changed, because obviously diving into it when you're 14 versus 19 versus 26 is a very different story. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Part of the motivation for diving into it too is like, like I said, spending more time with less books and, and really trying to get the most out of them as possible. Especially these books where like, the sub subtitle of the book is a bit gimmicky, like escape the nine to five, live anywhere and join the new rich. Um, if this came out today, I don't know what the reception would be. Um, but Tim Ferriss is somebody who I think we both really respect and admire. And so, you know, he's put up enough body of work to where he, if he, if he promotes some sort of process or way of doing things, I think in my mind, at least it at least warrants giving it a shot. Um, these now kind of strategies to follow and, you know, do, do this and for guaranteed outcome or a dime a dozen, uh, especially today. But I wanted to see what would actually happen if you followed it from somebody that you really knew was, um, reputable and, and knew what they were talking about and has really stood the test of time. And Tim Ferriss is that person. So I think in that way, reading it in 2023 is actually a bit of a benefit because it's like the book is still a bestseller. Um, and Tim Ferriss is obviously still doing quite well. Uh, so it, it does have staying power. It, you, you definitely could have been more skeptical about it in 2008 um, when it came out. So so yeah, anyway, um, we can just kind of talk about some of the things that I started to take away from this book um, that, again, still apply today. And we can kind of talk about like how these things matter in both of our lives. So 
the first thing that I took away was that uh, rules change when sacred cows are killed, which basically just means that the rules of any game or anything you're doing in life will change when somebody comes in and tests basic assumptions and proves that those basic assumptions that people playing that game up until then had just been following without questioning. Um, and that's when you get a, a paradigm shift. So Drew, I'm curious, has this ever happened like in baseball, um, specifically in like sports and performance, um, where somebody came into the field and just completely challenged the way things were done and it led to a shift to now that is just the standard. Yeah. I mean, I think the obvious one is when you think of Moneyball, right. And that's where my mind immediately goes generally with baseball. Um, just like the rise of tech in baseball, the use of economics and mathematics in baseball. And it seems like so many of the people that are coming into baseball now, especially in the front office are getting degrees in economics and math and things like this, um, especially economics more than anything else. They're, they're systems thinkers. And, um, that's definitely been a big paradigm shift. Um, aside from that, I think technology in baseball, people traditionally wanted to keep technology as far away as possible, but you know, it's no secret that every team has technology when it comes to pitching, hitting, strength and conditioning, nutrition, athletic training, at least a dozen pieces of technology in every department uh, dedicated to every minute detail. And then that's created whole departments of people crunching these numbers, trying to distinguish, you know, signal over noise. Um, and trying to figure out how we can best apply things going forward. I think long gone are the days where somebody like Babe Ruth just pulls up to the ballpark and, you know, is smoking cigarettes in the dugout and drinking hot dogs. And, you know, guys are just doing whatever they want in practice. Um, I think that there's been a, a large paradigm shift for sure. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Yeah, my mind would also probably go to Moneyball first in that example um i'm trying to think of trying to think of my own example i mean uh uber oddly comes to mind because um i think people had had like kind of these ride sharing ideas before but the the rule there that that the the basic assumption there that nobody thought to question was that people just don't want to get into strangers cars and have them drive them around which turned out to just be wholly not true um, we all take Ubers and we all get into strangers' cars. Um, obviously, it's not as simple as that. There's security measures and things like that in place. But that was the basic assumption. Same with Airbnb. Um, it, nobody thought, obviously, people had always rented out their homes. But on a mass scale, nobody thought that, A, people would want to rent out their homes to complete strangers. And then people didn't think that complete strangers would want to stay at somebody's home instead of a hotel. Uh, so that, that's another example of just this basic assumption being tested and the result and, and, and paradigm shift that, that came from it. Yeah. I would say also with those two examples, 
I mean, the proof is kind of in the pudding and that, um, I don't know. The, the biggest thing is if it's more efficient or easy, or it's going to be more convenient, then you're going to be more likely to latch onto it. And what I really mean by that is, all right, you're not going to take an Uber, um, when it is first starting out, but you know, if it's 15 degrees in Philadelphia and you have to go two miles, and you know that you're going to be going to a bar that night and don't want to drive, everyone kind of has their price. If it's, you know, $10 to do that and I don't have to ask a favor of someone else, eh, I might end up doing that. Or if hotel prices are $400 in New York City and you can find an Airbnb for $150, well, now I'll maybe consider it. So I think at the end of the day, it's not thinking about these things as absolutely no one would do that ever in their right mind. It's everyone kind of has a price that they'll pay for convenience, right? Yeah, 100%. Um, and kind of in that same vein, there's another takeaway I had from the book, um, which again, for, for those who don't know, what I'm doing with this book is I'm, I'm taking, I, I read this book in the first week of January, and now I'm spending the rest of January just going through it and going through my highlights and adding them to the note-taking app I used, which is Obsidian. And I, I'll actually, in the show notes, talk about my system for doing this. If anybody wants to, to copy it, you can kind of do it with pretty much any note-taking app. I just choose to use this one. Um, so the next takeaway that I had was uh, ask for forgiveness, not permission. And this kind of goes, segues nicely uh, out of what we were just talking about. Um, with the idea being there, like, if you're going to make a decision where the potential damage is uh, moderate at the worst, um, or the uh, outcomes are reversible, you shouldn't even, don't, don't even ask anybody, just go ahead and, and do what you're going to do. Um, with the idea there being like, people are very quick to shut you down, especially if the thing that you're going to do does test a, an assumption that nobody tests or uh, is, is a rule that people think needs to be followed. Um, so if you decide you're going to break that rule and the outcome is not something that could potentially be disastrous or harm other people, or if it's uh, reversible uh, in, in kind of a non-damaging way, you should just do it. You shouldn't even give people the opportunity to stop you. Um, people are hesitant to get in your way uh, if you're already moving towards something, but if uh, people are hesitant to get in your way, if you're, if you're already moving towards something, they're, they're quick to tell you no if you haven't started already. But if if you look like you're somebody who's moving with conviction towards something anyway and are confident in what you're about to do, um, they'll more or less just kind of let you go ahead. Um, and I think that's I think that's really interesting, and I think it's it's a framework to it's a way to think about actually testing basic assumptions. Is is if you're going to try to be uh, a rule breaker in a good way you should just do it and, and don't, don't ask somebody if you can do it. Um, because the person that you're asking if they can, if you can do it is just operating on the same basic assumption that everyone else is that you're trying to test anyway. So I thought that was, um, pretty interesting. Uh, it does go back to, uh, Moneyball also like how much did Billy Bean get? He got so much shit for putting the team together that he did. Um, he was obviously successful. He, if it turned out to be a total disaster, he would have had to ask for forgiveness, probably would have lost his job anyway. Um, but once he started doing it, 
nobody really stopped him because of the outcome that they were witnessing before them on the field. Yeah, I definitely agree with the Billy Bean stance, but I even think about, you know, your place in an organization as somebody that's a little bit more junior. And I think especially for listeners that are coming out of the school system, um, you know, something that I've struggled with is, hey, I want to ask permission for everything so that I don't get in trouble. But at the end of the day, a lot of that is just creating more work for the people above you because you're insecure about making mistakes. And, you know, I think developing a good feel of, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And this is going to be my contingency plan if it doesn't go right. Uh, really earns you credibility because your boss doesn't want to have you sit there and ask every single question about how you should go about doing something so that you don't get in trouble. I think it's better to just take the risk and be respectful of their time, effort, and energy and just go make it happen. And then if you mess up, just say, hey, I took a risk and here's my contingency plan out of this. Uh, I think this is really difficult for people that are just out of school because for, especially if you're you know, going to college, university, or master's, you've been following rules for so many years and how many people that I've been in school with that there's an assignment and you get a prompt and a rubric and it has these directions and they'll still go to the professor asking, Hey, does this make sense? Does this make sense? Can I do this? Could I write about that? It's like, just, just <laughs> break out of that model and just take a risk. Uh, but I think that's really hard for people to do when, you know, the school system kind of pushes them towards that mindset. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think an even more important point there is also like school kind of ingrains that habit in you. Like, I know this is kind of where I land a lot of the time is like, I I'm a very r rule based person. I, I for had to kind of shake out of the idea that like I needed uh, this degree or this person's permission to pursue uh, this certain path or I needed this kind of uh, credibility indicator, like a, a certain degree or experience, like that just wasn't true. I, I, I found that to just completely not be true, um, in my own experience. Um, I, I've, I've been able to do things, uh, with my, my career that I, just, if I told myself I was in from back from college, that that's what I'd be doing. I, I wouldn't, wouldn't have believed myself. I would have thought that like, I must have switched degrees at some point or taken some sort of specialized masters to be able to do that. Um, when it's not true, I, I, I just took an initiative and was willing to, um, just kind of barrel ahead with what, what I wanted to do. And, and you, I think you'll find most people find like, nobody's actually going to get in your way if you do that with, with conviction. Um, and like Drew said too, uh, you know, if you're junior in an organization, um, just starting out and, you know, you, you, you want to kind of go ahead and, and have more autonomy and you, you think the decision you're going to make is a good idea, obviously use common sense and, and, and think about it and, and think about what the potential repercussions or outcomes could be. But again, if, if the outcome is not, uh, 
damaging to your career or damaging to the business or damaging to other people you work with. Um, if it's something that you can uh, rationalize and justify and uh, actually have a contingency plan for and, and say like, here was what I was doing and here's the potential uh, solution I have if, if this goes wrong. Um, by, by all means, I think that would serve, that will serve you much better than waiting on the sidelines, asking somebody like, can I do this? Can I do that? Um, you also just learn a ton more and you'll learn a lot faster than, uh, your peers. Yeah, I definitely agree. And something that I've heard more and more in, since coming into the workforce is people in junior positions, just continually saying, well, I have no autonomy. I have no autonomy. And then you kind of pry a little bit deeper and it's like, well, you won't even send an email to somebody in another department without running it by your boss. So like if I'm a boss and you're asking me questions about something as simple as that, like how's that going to reflect on you in terms of a independent person that I don't need to be hawking all the time? So I don't know. Obviously there are plenty of situations where people don't have autonomy and they're good about these things that we're talking about. But I think that a lot of times people fail to realize that they're the ones that are giving off hesitancy, insecurity, and a lack of, lack of conviction. And this is leading them to have less autonomy or trust by whoever's supervising them. So I think it's important to consider the other side of the coin here and consider yourself. Yeah, 100%. Um... Yeah, there's this other quote from the book that I have here pulled up, which says uh, there's a direct correlation between an increased sphere of comfort and getting what you want. And I think that kind of ties nicely into this idea of just kind of forging ahead and, and, and being autonomous and, you know, be, being ready to, to ask for forgiveness and explain yourself if something goes wrong, obviously, hopefully not horribly wrong, um, but to make your own, make decisions for yourself and to, uh, to, to even just decide on anything because a, a decision is, is something you, you have to, to stand by is a scary thing. And one way to just kind of increase, um, increase, uh, your ability to, to get where you want to go and do these things is to deliberately kind of make yourself, um, uncomfortable and get comfortable in uncomfortable situations like that. So uh, I really like that quote as like a way to, to think about doing this. Like if it feels uncomfortable in a good way, um, I think you'll kind of know what I'm talking about when I say that, like you should probably stay there until you get comfortable. Is there any way that you're applying that in your own life, either recently or maybe in the past? Uh, yeah, I think I am somebody who like, I'm not my, so I like, I work with, uh, software engineers and that's something that's a realm I'm like, not super comfortable in because it's just, I don't have a lot of expertise in it. Um, so for a little while I was like hesitant to propose, uh, solutions to certain problems because, you know, I don't know if it's technically feasible or not, if, if it's a stupid idea or what. Um, but I've been trying to get in the habit more of actually just proposing what I think is the best solution, um, when working with, uh, engineers or people who are more technically advanced than I am and just being, uh, being willing and open to 
the possibility that my suggestion will be wholly rejected and then getting comfortable with asking, okay, like, why not? Tell me more. I didn't know that, which is um, not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to deliberately put yourself in the position of feeling uh, kind of stupid for lack of a better word um, or, or, or like a novice, but that's where most growth happens. So you just have to kind of be willing to, to put yourself in those situations. I'm curious too, how is that received by those people as you coming in as a, not necessarily an outsider, because in some ways you're on the same team as them, but coming in as somebody that doesn't have, have as much domain knowledge and then proposing solutions, how has that been received? Yeah, I think it's been received uh, well. Like, again, P I, I think people people who are, are capable of what they do and, and are trying to, that, that you're working with, who are trying to achieve a certain outcome and, and they need to work with you to do it, would much rather you be involved and quickly learning and getting up to speed through trial and error rather than just waiting on the sidelines and, and waiting for them to, to propose solutions. So I, it's been received super well. And I, I think it's also like nine out of 10 times people are going to be much more willing to, to teach you and be, be patient with you. Um, obviously that you'll run into the odd person who's like, you know, you, you bring up something that uh, a solution they think is stupid and they'll just kind of totally write you off, but that's kind of their, their loss. But most people will uh, be patient and take the time to actually explain to you um, why you're who, who are more senior than you or more experienced, why what you propose is not a good idea. And then um, the more iterations of that, that you go through, the closer you actually get to their level of expertise, actually. Um, obviously, you have to do your own learning and, and, and studying and, and kind of have your own experiences. But um, every wrong answer that you get in those kind of situations and, and every time you get corrected and are willing to take the correction and learn from it, you've just gotten that much closer to where that person you're working with is at. And then you become uh, just more valuable. You become more experienced. You become more skilled. Uh, so it's a, it's a win for, for everybody. So, um, put yourself in those positions. It's really, really short-term pain for long-term, uh, long-term gain. So I, I would say definitely put yourself in those positions. Do you, do you have any of like your own experience? Um, I wouldn't say as much. I mean, the thing that I actually want to get your take on a little bit more is this advice of stay in your lane and I'll kind of talk about it on my end to begin with. My role is a little bit different where you're on a team, but you're sort of coordinating the project versus I'm somebody that's on the team and there's somebody coordinating above me. And um, I'd say in the field of sports performance, we typically have a lot of different people in the team. And just generally there's this, mindset of stay in your lane, although everyone talks about bridging the gap. And so these two things are at odds with each other. You can't necessarily bridge a gap and reach out and try to, you know, connect with another lane or sometimes veer into it uh, without uh, leaving your lane. So um, 
I'm curious to get your thoughts because, you know, everyone's talking about collaboration and being a little bit more of a specialized generalist and bridging the gap here. But can you even really do that while staying completely in your lane? Because it seems like you're going out on a limb and reaching out to people with solutions that are completely in their domain and that's successful. Yeah, I mean, I think like the stay in your lane advice is almost like a sacred cow kind of kind of thing. Um, I guess, I don't know, it's it's nuanced, but th the way it's used in that kind of framing is, uh, is yeah, I, I think maybe that's just kind of, uh, kind of leftover from people just saying it, which is unfortunate. Like somebody who tells you to stay in your lane at work, I don't know if they would actually say it in those words, but like somebody who implies that, or, or maybe who does explicitly say it probably is somebody who just like had it said to them at some point in their career and, and just sees like, that's the rule. Um, and you should, you should box people in if you see them getting out of their, uh, zone that you've defined for them. Um, but I think people who like, uh, good mentors or good teachers, um, you know, could be a great boss are people who are willing to let uh, you know, you know, I guess more junior people or new people into the organization, um, kind of play around in space that hasn't, they haven't been defined in yet. Um, if, if that, that's a special skill and uh, a special thing to, to have in a career is, is somebody who will let you do that. Um, so obviously it's something to seek out. But yeah, I think that's probably just something somebody had said to them at some point, and it just gets, it just becomes like the rule or uh, some form of, of dogma, but that doesn't need to be the case. Like I remember um, I was listening to a podcast, uh, I think Jason Portnoy was the guy who was on and he was like, I think he was the first CFO of PayPal and his story was really interesting because I think he was a, I think he was like a chemical engineer in college and had no, no finance experience, but he ended up being the chief financial officer of PayPal. And the reason was because um, Peter Thiel and some of the early um, founders of PayPal, they, they were known for, they didn't hire based off like current skills or expertise. I mean, that, that factored a little bit into it, I'm sure. But what they were really hiring for was potential. So they saw in Sky Jason Portnoy um, the potential, I think, not only to be able to do the role of, of CFO and have kind of the, the financial skills and, and knowledge and, and gain those things to be effective, but um, just the potential of somebody who could uh, really be effective within an organization and really be a difference maker. Um, so that's a prime example of like no other company in the U S would have hired him to be in their finance department, let alone their CFO. Cause he like, no, you're painted into the box of being a chemical engineer, stay in your lane. Like even if he wanted to, he, I think he just interviewed with PayPal. Like, I don't think he had, um, somebody connected him to Peter Thiel. And I, I don't think he actually had any 
idea what he would be doing. Um, he just took the interview. But even if he did want to be the CFO or, or in the financial department um, of another company, people would have said no. Like they would have painted him in the box very much, you know, stay in your lane, go back to chemical engineering. Why are you trying to do this? Um, but instead, you know, so, some of the people who are qu quite visionary um, who started PayPal instead looked at that and said, like, where's where's this person's opportunity to go? What, what trajectory are they on? And how does that fit into our organization? And um, it ended up working out uh, quite well for them. So, so I think that's that's a good example of how that that idea is really just very it's very limiting. Um, it's kind of a doing a disservice to whoever you say that to. And if the person is, could could benefit you in some way, uh, you're really doing a disservice to yourself by by limiting them. Yeah, you've talked. A pretty good amount about let's say rules and breaking them and breaking expectations too and then risk taking which are i would say pretty mindset based but i think that a lot of this book is relatively tactical so i'm wondering if there's any tactical system or takeaway or i guess action item that you've been applying from the book because yeah, I will I mean, say, what, I, I will say real quick, like, yes, there's a lot of mindset stuff that you're covering, but there also is things like virtual assistants and, uh, I mean, a million different ways to market and pricing stuff. Like, there, it's full of so many different things. So have any of those things kind of caught your eye or is it more so the, the mindset-based stuff? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of tactical stuff. Yeah, like you said, the virtual assistants and automating all these different systems. Um, I, I haven't really focused on that too much. What I have, one of one of the kind of tactics I took away from the book was leveraging uh, Parkinson's law, which is, I forgot who Parkinson actually is, the person that came up with this rule. Um, but it's basically the idea that work consumes the amount of time you allot to it. So this is the reason that, you know, if you have two months to get a project done, say you're in school or, or at work, um, why you, you, you put off doing it and you procrastinate to the last minute. It's like you had two weeks to do it, but somehow you ended up doing it in like three days before it's due. Like, why is, why is that the case? Why does that happen over and over again? It's because the amount of time mentally we give ourselves to do things, um, the, the work itself will kind of just... And I, this isn't like an iron law. It's just kind of a, a psychological phenomenon that, that seems to reliably pop up. Uh, the work will expand to consume that amount of time. So you can invert it and actually self-impose really almost impossible deadlines on yourself to get uh, work done in a very quick amount of time. Uh, so I've been using this at work where, you know, I have, I'm lucky I, I don't have a job where I have to work the typical nine to five and, and be working, working, working for, you know, eight hours straight. My day's a little bit more flexible than that. Um, so what I've been really trying to do is wake up around like 6.30, start work by 7.30 and start a timer um, and, and block off my calendar to get all the most important work that I have lined up for that day done before 
1130. So that's four hours. And what I'll do in those four hours is I'll like, I'll also time block the individual tasks. So like, you know, checking my email, checking my Slack messages, checking all these like various other um, little things that I, I need to just make sure I don't have any notifications on. I'll give myself like a total of, you know, 10 minutes to do that. So I'm accounting for like, if I have to reply to anyone or do anything um, where it's like, if you're not careful doing something like that could consume your entire morning. If you don't have anything else set up to box that in. So like, I'll, I'll literally give myself 10 minutes to do all of that. And then it's done. I don't really need to do it for the rest of the day. Um, I'll check again at the end of the day to make sure nothing came in, but that, and then if it's kind of a more, um, focus intensive task, I'll give myself, I don't know, say so something that I previously thought took two hours to do, which was, uh, maybe doing, doing research, um, for something that, uh, I want, you know, to work on with the team, um, and, and kind of writing up rationale and, and like a pitch for it. That's something I used to probably make, take two hours to do. Now it's something I'm only giving myself, you know, 45 minutes to do or one hour to do. Um, so, you know, be realistic, but also be unrealistic when doing it, uh, to, to not give yourself too much leeway. Cause you don't, you don't want to give yourself too short amount of time that you do like a, actually a poor job because what you're, the thing you're doing actually does require a certain amount of time, but, uh, don't give yourself all day either. Don't give yourself multiple days to do something that, um, you, you truly do know could actually be done in uh, quite a short amount of time. Yeah, I would say it's also, like you're saying, it depends on the thing that you're working on. Some things are, you know, you need to get them completely perfect, but most things aren't. You know, that email where you're trying to absolutely wordsmith it into being perfect does not need to be, you know, scrupulously uh, examined for, 30 minutes. Maybe if you're a university president sending out a memo on an important event, yeah, maybe that makes sense. But, you know, you just asking a question of somebody in HR about your 401k probably doesn't matter as long as you get the point across. And I think, you know, we've talked about this before, but like there's perfectionism, which can be actually pretty helpful, but then maladaptive perfectionism is something that's very unhelpful where you're being such a perfectionist that it's taking away from your effectiveness in other things. And I would say another aspect of the school system is the weighting of different tasks. You know, you have some types of different weighting, you know, homework might be 10% of the grade, but you know, tests are 50%, whatever it is. But I think a lot of people come out of the school system not being taught that, hey, like if you get your homework done in 30 minutes and, you know, you get an 85% versus you do it for three hours and you get a 93%, like take the 85% because that's how it's going to be in the real world, right? Um, I think that a lot of people want to get things entirely perfect and they don't really at the end of the day, what they don't realize is the diminishing returns of extra effort. And that's one of the key things that Tim Ferriss is talking about, diminishing returns. Yeah, no, he definitely does talk about that too in the book. And I mean, I mean, the first like one third of this book is like very tactical. Um, 
towards the end, it gets into things where it's like, you kind of have to have been following along with the book and enacting some of the exercises and principles that he talks about for, for it to be, uh, useful. Like the very end of the book, um, the probably last like fourth of the book, I would say is just about like, you know, traveling and, um, how, how to, how to set up your life for extended travel. Like, again, it's, it's a good book to, to kind of pick apart and take what you need at, at a given time. Um, Again, like I said, another part is about negotiating a remote work agreement, obviously for that's not possible for everyone. And then for most people, it's actually surprisingly become the norm over the last three years. So that, that part's kind of not really relevant as much anymore. Um, and then there's some of the bits about automation, which, um, again, unless, unless you like have people working for you yet, um, are not really, uh, super useful, but. Um, one other thing that I think we've kind of talked about before that I was, it was nice to be reminded of. And I found I've, I've continued to find really helpful is the 80, 20 principle. So Drew, I, I think I know you're, you're familiar with that, but it's basically it's the Pareto principle. It's basically just the law, the rule that, um, 20% of inputs result in 80% of outputs. And the takeaway there is that just most things don't actually matter. So there's, you know, a, a very small amount of things that you do in the day that result in the outputs that actually uh, matter for your life. Same goes for uh, information. That's another thing Tim Ferriss talks about in the book is the low information diet, which I talked about on our habits episode, which is something I'm trying to do this year. Um, just read less, take in less information. Most information is nonsense. Um, and, and totally irrelevant to your life. And very few things are actually uh, useful and can be put to use. And Drew, I don't know if you want to talk about maybe some how you've used uh, just-in-time learning versus just-in-case learning, which um, I know you've you've had a lot of success with, kind of falls into this bucket as well. Yeah, I think we've talked about this before on other podcasts, but the distinguishing between just in time versus just in case. I describe just in case as almost creating a nuclear stockpile of information that you might use, you know, one day or once in your life or, you know, a few times versus just in time is more you encounter a situation at work where you have to apply something that you didn't previously know. And you need to get up to speed on it, then apply it very quickly. And from my point of view, I think that just-in-time learning is a far better way to ensure that you're taking in quality information that's going to be a little bit more timeless in your own life, while also helping you to retain it a little bit more because you're immediately learning this information and then directly applying it. I would say that the majority of my just-in-case learning at this point comes while learning uh, different things for the podcast. It's things that I want to dive into and I'm going to use them on the podcast for the purpose of educating people and, uh, you know, seeing if I have a full understanding of a given topic. Most of the time I'm doing this in my field. So I'm thinking that it's going to be a little bit more productive, but it's still not just in time learning 
or it's just in time learning to a degree, but it's for the purpose of the podcast. Um, but at this point, most of my learning has skewed towards just in time where, like you said in the last episode, I'm not going to be reading books on whatever, like the genetic engineering revolution. I think that's the one that, that you were reading in the past where, you know, that doesn't have much value aside from entertainment at this point in time. So I'm sticking to a little bit more timeless knowledge. And then once a problem comes up at, at work or in my life that I'm trying to figure out, I have so much more bandwidth because I've gotten rid of most of the just in case learning to focus on that just in time learning. Yeah. And one of the ways that you can actually select for or make sure that you're focusing on just in time learning is to ask yourself, um, will I definitely use this information for something immediate and important? Um, cause otherwise you can get caught up in just kind of learning broad strokes, things about a topic, um, you know, things that might not be particularly useful. But if you get in the habit of asking yourself, like, okay, where am I going to apply this uh, in, in the, the very near term? Uh, if you don't have a place, then you should just probably stop what you're doing and, and put put that book or shut that podcast off, uh, put that book down or shut the podcast off. Because uh, the information is just not really doing anything for you. It's kind of just wasted time, wasted energy. Versus if you can come up with somewhere where you're going to put the ener- put that information, um, you know, you're, you're learning something that'll that'll move the needle. I like personally had this with, um, uh, coding. Like I have tried to pick up trying to learn how to code like a billion times. And I have a very school-based mindset. Um, I like think everything needs to be done from the one-on-one class and up. And while it's not a bad way to think about things, cause it is important to understand the basics and the fundamentals of whatever you're trying to learn. I realized that, um, you know, I wasn't applying uh, a lot of what I was learning, trying to learn to code to any particular problem versus say that, you know, I want to change the way something functions on my, my website. Say I want to change the way, uh, a certain, a certain button works, or I want to add a, a new field to capture people's emails. All of a sudden that becomes a very concrete problem and it can be very easy to then learn the skill of like, all right, what, what JavaScript is what's used, um, for website functionality? Like what, what little bit of JavaScript do I need to learn right now to be able to solve this problem? Like that's a much more valuable use of time. And the, what you learn from doing that, um, will actually stick with you for so much longer, uh, because you applied it to something that actually matters to you versus learning a bunch of nebulous information where you're not sure if you're going to apply it or not. Um, I'm a big believer in that. Like we learn by, we learn by doing and learning is quite very experiential. I wasn't always so didn't always feel so strongly about this, but the more I've kind of uh, just progressed and, and uh, evolved as a person, um, I really believe like we need to use the things we learn and we need to use them quickly if we want to have any hope of actually retaining them. Um, Drew, I feel like this is uh, probably true for you with, with Spanish. Yeah, it's definitely 
true of Spanish, and I'll get to that. But, I mean, at the end of the day, I think just-in-time learning is, in a lot of ways, a bigger point about putting yourself in challenging situations professionally because you're not going to need much just-in-time learning if you're not encountering frequent, difficult challenges in your life. And that's why a lot of people that are super accomplished at 30 and 40 have had years and years of positions with very challenging obstacles that they're tasked with. And then it's like, you talk to some of them and it's, how do you have this much knowledge on all these things? From what I've found, it's not typically that they read 15 books on a given subject, you know, with no challenges. It's that they've continually had to overcome challenges that required more and more expertise in a given subject. Um, but the way that I've harnessed it with Spanish, I think just not doing just-in-time learning when it comes to vocabulary or verbs, I don't go through flashcards trying to learn different verbs or different vocab words, hoping that I'll use it in the future. I just have conversations and then the professor will say a word. No, I've never heard that word in my life. Okay. This is the definition of the word. This is the definition of the verb. This is what it means in English. And then, you know, I'll try to use it in a sentence, but I'm not going to go back and try to circle back and really hammer down the meaning of that word or verb. Because if I've been learning this language for three years at this point, and it's the first time I'm using this verb, um, or word, I can probably just ask the person what it means in the future again as well. Right. So it's really about mastering the, the basics through practice instead of, you know, trying to build a nuclear arms warehouse or depot of just knowledge that you're never going to use. Um, but one thing that I want to actually get to, um, is price. And I don't know if you've gotten into this part of four hour work week, but he talks about pricing a lot. And I have a lot of thoughts on this as somebody that's in nutrition and exercise and feel free to jump in uh, at any point, or you can just respond to what I say. But if you have a goal of, let's say making $2,000 a month, Tim Ferriss provides a great distinction that I don't think that people can typically conceive for themselves. And it's okay. You could either charge if you want to make 2000 a month, a hundred dollars to 20 people or a thousand dollars to two people, right? Having a low ticket versus a high ticket offer. If you think about the amount of work that you're going to have to put in to sell a exercise or nutrition plan to 20 different people for a hundred dollars and fulfill that it is a ton of work, especially if this is reoccurring people, Let's say you want to make $10,000 a month. Now for $100 a program or $100 a month, you have to have 100 different people. And we've kind of harnessed this in our own business in GravFit where I work, where we have more high ticket offers, but we ensure that, and in the past we had $100, $200 offers, but now it's more $1,000, $500 for some of these programs. And 
what that does is it frees up so much more time where you're not fulfilling a million different plans and not responding to a million different calls and texts. And now you can really dial in a nice group of 15 to 25 people while still making a good living. And at the end of the day, it sounds like charging more money to people is transactional and you're just doing it for the money. Actually, I would argue the complete opposite. Charging $100 and just sending somebody a PDF of a meal plan and providing them absolutely no support, that's one of the most transactional things that you can do. But accepting, let's say, $500 to $1,500, not necessarily a month, but for a certain commitment, three or six months, and providing great support to them and leading them through the process of becoming somebody that exercises and eats well, that's far less transactional. And I think that a lot of people have trepidation with this because when you're on with the phone with someone, you're gonna get more, more no's as a response to your offer. And it's a little bit scary charging $1,000. What are they gonna think of me if I'm charging $1,000 and you know, in my case, sometimes you're 24, 25 years old when you're doing this, who do the, like, who are you to charge me this much? Well, the person I am is I've been studying this for X amount of years and applying it in my own life. So you are learning from all of my school expertise that I've invested in all that effort, all that time, and then all of the mistakes that I've made along the way um, that I can help shortcut for you. So this is, as you can probably tell, some topic that I'm very passionate about because in the field of sports performance, not necessarily sports performance, in the field of exercise and nutrition, especially gen pop, we're always lowering the price to try to get sales and that just screws over everyone. Um, and so I think that actually the best way to stand out from a crowded marketplace is not to try to charge $100 a month or 50 a month like everyone else, it's to charge a lot. And that might drive people away, but because people are investing more in your program or uh, you as a person, they're going to be a lot more committed in the end. Yeah, definitely. I 100% agree with that. I think what, what you're doing there is uh, I've heard, I don't know who coined this term, but you're actually, you're narrow casting. So instead of broadcasting your nutrition services to everybody under the sun, which, uh, you know, at first sounds like a good sales tactic to get your product in front of as many people as possible. What actually happens is you're never you're first of all all those people you get in front of, in front of only a small percentage are going to want to buy anyway um and then it's like what kind of customer do you actually want this is something tim ferris talks about in the book is like you have to be willing to actually um basically hire and fire your customers so um a customer who is you know maybe even if they're contributing like a decent amount in revenue, if they're an absolute pain to work with and the demands that they put on your company in terms of like support hours or your own hours um, kind of start eating into that revenue in a way that's just kind of unacceptable, uh, you have to be willing to actually get rid of that customer and kind of sever that relationship, whether that's by, you know, actually doing so. I know Tim Ferriss has an example of the book where he literally just calls one of his customers and tells them that they won't be doing business anymore. Um, or you price yourself out of their market, something like that. Um, that's obviously a counterintuitive thing to do. 
but it's exactly like what you just said, like based off where you price yourself, you're going to select for um, a different type of customer that will treat you a different type of way during the uh, transaction. And it'll also impact the the product that you that you produce at the end of the day. So I think that's that's an important point. And then another important point that I didn't hear, I might, this might be in four hour work week, but I think I've heard this elsewhere as well, is when you're like pricing something for the first time, especially if it's like kind of your own services or your own product, um, asking for money is a very uncomfortable thing for people. And kind of like the book says, you gotta get comfortable doing those uncomfortable things the piece of advice that I've heard is to whatever number you have in your head that you think uh, is reasonable or that you're even scared to ask for, you should take that number and then three exit. Uh, because I think we're bad judges of like what people's actual willingness to pay is. Uh, we tend to underestimate ourselves and what we've actually, the quality of what we've actually produced or what we're capable of producing. And also just pricing at that high is going to select for, Again, just a, a higher intent customer who actually sees value and is willing to pay for that product and who is um, probably, hopefully, going to treat you better throughout the transaction period and, and through your relationship um, with them as a customer. Because uh, obviously, this has now gone from a minor, kind of maybe even frivolous buying decision to them to now something where they have to be uh, really uh, conscientious and um, aware of, of what they're buying and who they're interacting with. So I think that's that's a, a great piece of advice. I'm not sure if you have anything more you want to talk about that. But. No, definitely. I Another thing that comes to mind with you saying that is a lot of people will have an 80 to 100% close rate on their plans. And, you know, unless that's like, very, very close people that are very, very close to you. That's actually a terrible thing. If 80 to a hundred percent of people that you're offering your plan are closing, it's not because you're a good salesperson. It's because you're charging way too little. You're not valuing your plan at a high enough level. Um, so, I mean, at any given time, the close rate for our business is around 20%. But if I'm charging a significantly higher price, I don't have to fulfill as many plans to other people and by marketing more and just having calls, I'm not only offsetting the price and almost getting paid for every single sales call where I don't actually close a deal. I'm also doing way less work for all these individual people and that buys more time to actually support that client. So I think it's important if you're not getting any no's, you're probably not charging enough. Um, and like you said, it needs to make you uncomfortable. Um, if it's just right in your comfort zone in terms of price, probably charging too little. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And two, for people who are listening to this and thinking, uh, you know, I don't, I don't sell anything. I don't have a business. This also goes for if you're an employee of a company, um, or if you're interviewing with another company or you're asking for a, a promotion, I can't remember where I saw this either, but, um, I think I might've just actually read about it in a, in an article I was reading about, um, negotiating salary, which was 
talking about how an employer an employer will have a different view of you in like a positive way if you're actually willing to negotiate for yourself. Like if, if an employer comes to you with an offer of say like, I don't know, like they say, you know, $50,000 a year salaries, take that number. Um, and then you are willing to, if, if, if you're the per if you're willing to just say, yes, thank you. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Um, it kind of creates this and not that there's anything wrong with that, that salary. It's a good salary. It's just, um, it can create a um, perception of you in the mind of the employer. Like, okay, that that's what that person thinks they're worth. Clearly like that's, they were very willing to take that. Um, they might've even gone less like based off how kind of enthusiastic you were about it versus somebody who is willing to uh, negotiate and value the, themselves higher. Um, the perception is that, you know, you're somebody who values uh, yourself and your services highly and, um, you know, are, are somebody worth employing. So pricing is interesting psychology. Um, it's definitely something to be aware of and to think about again, if you're selling something or if you're pricing your services or you're negotiating your salary, um, really think about like where you're valuing yourself and your work at, and don't be afraid to, um, get out of your comfort zone there because, you know, unless you're totally divorced from reality and th there's probably a good chance that you are kind of underselling yourself in that area. Yeah. I would say my last thing on that, especially with salary is if you are getting uh, percent increases for your raises each year, you absolutely have to be somebody that is uncomfortable when you're making your ask because not only are you going to pay for it that year by making less money, you're going to have less of a percentage. Well, you have the same percentage increase, but the absolute amount every year, if you're getting fixed percentage raises are going to be less and less. So it's the mistake that's going to be paid for by you for years to come. So I think that's a important thing too, for anyone that gets percentage increases for their raises. Yeah. It, on a similar note, not really in the same, same deal, but like it, it's, uh, it, it's the idea of anchoring to this is just a powerful sales tactic that people talk about all the time. It's like a psychological fact is we, we anchor on to, um, in this case, uh, uh, we're talking about price. Um, we anchor onto the first price that we're presented with and then any negotiations that follow that are kind of anchored to that price and, and kind of move around, um, that initial asking price. So, you know, if I say I want, I'm selling something for, you know, I'm selling a nutrition plan and I'm selling it for a thousand dollars as my, my first ask. And the person wants to negotiate with me, they're much less likely to go down to $50 or a hundred dollars um, than they are to stay around the ballpark of like $500 or $700. Um, as opposed to if you initially were like uncomfortable, if you were really uncomfortable asking for a thousand, you said, okay, I'm really uncomfortable with that. I'm just going to ask for a hundred dollars. Then it's for both of you, not that unreasonable for the person to say, oh, how about 50? Um, and then you're forced to keep meeting in the middle and you might land at like 85 or something versus if you just went with the number that you're uncomfortable with, even if the person says something like mm, 
remember that when you went into that conversation, you were happy to even be getting a hundred. Now all of a sudden you're getting 300 and this is what the person haggled, haggled you down to. Um, so that's, that's just anchoring. Um, it's not really part of the four hour work week, but, um, it is interesting nonetheless. Yeah. And I think also another way you can harness anchoring is through an AB option. So, all right, I have one plan that costs $2,000, but I also have a plan that costs $400 and they're different levels of service, but it's like, you could almost have it be your intent that you have that $400 plan that you know, people are going to be driven to, but once they're anchored to the $2,000 plan, like, oh, well, it sounds like $400 is kind of a no brainer for everything that I'm getting. I don't need all of that in the $2,000 plan. And because you anchored them to the $2,000 plan, they're going to be more likely to spring for that compared to if you said, yeah, it's $400. Oh, well, I don't know. I have nothing to compare that to. So, uh, yeah, the pricing aspects are super interesting, um, interesting part of the book. And I would say in terms of wrapping up on my side, my opinions on the book, I think this book is best for people that just can't conceive living their life another way. I would say that's one of the biggest values, whether it's in business or their lifestyle or the limits that they're setting for themselves. It's a mindset book in that it's giving you so many different protocols of how you could live your life differently or think about things differently, whether it's, you know, arbitraging the exchange rate by living in Thailand and having a remote work agreement. Like that is so out there for so many different people that even if you don't go and do that, it kind of helps push the horizons of what you believe is a little bit more possible. Um, so I think it has a lot of value in that because there's a lot of people that, like you said, James, like you're a big rule person. And I know that, you know, offline you've said in the past, like, I like that couldn't be me almost for certain, certain situations. Like, Oh, I don't think that could be me. Like I wouldn't be allowed to do that even though there's nothing stopping you and I can be the exact same. So I think that this is something that can kind of push those horizons and help you to think like, you know what, right now I could just drop everything and, you know, start to work in Thailand or Beijing or wherever. Um, and, and that's productive for a lot of people. Yeah, 100%. I think that's a good place to wrap. I think that's what like Tim Ferriss can uh, show a lot of people if you just kind of get to know his story and, and read his writing. Um, you can begin to begin to push the boundaries um, in your own life of like, just what you think is possible and what you think is, is reasonable. Um, so yeah, I think that's a great Great place to, to wrap. Um, obviously that was not everything that's in the book. It's not every tactic. It's not every mindset tool, but kind of just picked some of the ones that really resonated and that I've found to be true and really useful. Um, definitely pick up the book if you're, if you're interested in it. Again, there's some parts of it that really aren't relevant anymore, but there are just so many, uh, timeless principles and practice in the book. Um, this is one that will surely be around and, and useful for, for many, many more years to come. Um, I can see myself, you know, picking this back up in 10 years from now just to review it and go through it. 
So yeah, with that, I think that's, that's a pretty good place to wrap. Um, we'll have show notes for this one as well as a couple other little things in there that we talked about. Uh, those will be up with the show. You can get those at positive And then also don't forget if you're interested to join our discord, it's where we have our community, uh, where we have just like kind of discussions about the show. Um, we'll be adding like guests will be joining in there. And yeah, it's a great place to just keep in touch and keep the conversation going. The invite to that is also um, in the description of the show. And then we should probably, if we don't already have it, put it in the general description of the show that you can find on Spotify. Um, and yeah, I think that that's about it.